Neighbor Podcast. I'm Jesse Siderko. Welcome. What would you think is the single most important issue to tackle in this world? If you were given a blank canvas and asked to figure this question out, where would you begin? A few years back, I recall reading about a group of economists who are tackling this very task. In order to do this, they decided that it would be a good idea to prioritize how to save the world. Just like what we would do when we're executing a project, we would figure out what is most important to do first, how much time we would need to accomplish it, and how many resources we would have to get the job done. It's a pretty reasonable approach, I'd say. So in order to prioritize how to save the world, this group of economists literally went through all the major causes in the world and impartially deciphered which cause to address based on a cost-benefit analysis. They thought, what is the greatest amount of impact that could be made with the current resources we have? And the team, interestingly enough, concluded that although issues like climate change were an extremely important problem to address, the vastness of the issue and the price it would take to accomplish the task simply overwhelms the amount of resources we have to tackle it at the moment. And actually, they found that something like distributing vaccines to impoverished areas in the world would be the best way to address the greatest amount of trouble in the world in the shortest amount of time, considering the current resources that we have. And keep in mind, this was all pre-pandemic, all right? So the word vaccine wasn't so controversial at the time. But let's go back to this term for a second, cost-benefit analysis. In making a decision, we need to see whether the cost is worth the benefit. We need to think about how to get the most benefit with the lowest cost. It's another way of creating efficiencies, something we've talked a lot about in this podcast. But in order to do this kind of analysis, you need data. And to collect data, you need some kind of measuring tool, a measuring tool we use to capture the data we need to analyze what steps to take. Makes sense to me. But in the social arena, where we seek to heal human and relational brokenness that undergirds poverty, inequity, and injustice, it's worth wondering if economics can create a good enough measuring tool that can unearth enough data, or rather the right kind of data, to inform the way we prioritize and execute care. Philip Roscoe, who wrote this book called I Spend, Therefore I Am, How Economics Have Changed the Way We Think and Feel, he describes how economics have changed the way we interact as humans. He argues that with the collapse of the economy in 2008, companies and NGOs began running to economists in order to provide them with some kind of solution to do more with less. And I'd argue that that has increasingly informed so much of our life today. And like economists, we attempt to prioritize items, assumingly without bias or prejudice. But Roscoe argues, and I quote, economics punches above its weight in a sense that we're presented with facts that are seemingly objective, seemingly apolitical, when they're manifestly not, end quote. And here's the unsettling part of it all. When it comes to mixing economics in the social and relational parts of life, the instrumentalization that we see in economics, you know, its tone of opportunism, it doesn't bode well for building lasting and trusting relationships between people and communities. Because according to Roscoe, 
This is what happens. Economists attempt to measure the value of human life, which is quite audacious to begin with, and assess its future value, and then wonder how they can incentivize it. And that's a key word, incentivize. Imagine a community where everything has a scoring system, a way to quantify and qualify outcomes. Think of that first episode in Black Mirror, for those who've watched it on Netflix. It's just like that. Edward Skidelsky, an author of a book called How Much is Enough, he puts it best. He says, a measure is a dangerous tool, for it tends to take the place of whatever it measures. Today, I continue my conversation with Scott Moore, who is the executive director of Youth Unlimited in Toronto. Years back, in hopes to provide his staff with a way to gauge their impact among youth in their programs, his team created a measuring tool. I actually remember seeing it in a pamphlet at the start of this initiative. And yes, we printed things back then. And it had these infographics that looked like these fuel gauges in our cars. And those dealt with different areas of growth for the youth that they were serving. But as you'll hear, years after implementing this tool, they decided to put it to rest. I mean, they literally put it to rest and did a bit of a funeral service for this measuring tool initiative. So we talk about this and we get into all of the nuances of what was behind this. And that's what we'll hear right now. And so let's backtrack a little bit. So you said how many seven and a half years where you, where you started as the ED? Yep. Yeah. July 2013. Yep. Okay. So 20, go back to 2013. You just start. And by the way, maybe around that time or maybe a little after, I'm not sure when it all happened. I remember seeing a picture of you. Uh, your hair was a little bit bigger, I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and a little more curly. I remember it. And I, I, cause I remember seeing that you were, you're pretty young. And I just, every time I see someone who's young and the leader, I'm, I, I, my, my attention kind of goes that way. And so yeah. you were younger the leader and I saw your, your um, pamphlet, um, some kind of handout. And the handout had a bunch of these measurement things where you had like an infographic and then yep. some kind of way in which to to monitor each of those infographics that represented a particular whatnot of transformation yep. i assume of of people growing in that and then you would be able to measure that i remember seeing that and that's when we were beginning to think about things at at youngshu mission as well i saw that i'm like oh this is a really good communication by the way i thought oh this is they're communicating how they're beginning to 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 evaluate and measure whether people whether the programs are making a difference. That's all I got in that picture. Yeah. Um, and then, and so that's the picture. I had. And I'm, I'm assuming there's something that happened in the start where maybe that happened before you or with you. How yeah. did that begin? And, and what, what was the journey that took place with regards to how to evaluate programs and its effectiveness? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's been a seven and a half year journey <laughs> <laughs> and it's not over yet. Yeah. Uh, so what you're describing was what we call their five gauges of transformation. Okay. So I think there are a few few pieces that were part of that journey. So we had this, you know, what I felt like was a compelling vision, right? That every young person in the GTA would be transformed by God's love and power and become a redemptive presence in the city and beyond. Mm. But, but we didn't actually have a handle on, well, what does transformation look like? What does that 
mean. I think every person on our staff carried that in their heart, but it wasn't necessarily stated anywhere or to mm -hmm. say this is the, you know this is what it looks like when young people's lives are transformed by God. And that was really the heart of uh, what the gauges started to unfold was what's the picture of our vision come to life. Mm. Um, I think around the same time, so Carl Nash, who's, who's our ministry director, he became into that role at the same time. And we were wrestling really with this tension, not even tension, but focus on impact uh, or activity, right? And it's, it's very easy to say, mm. hey, I got 20 people showing up at basketball or I'm mentoring 15 young people through my DOXA small group right now, mm -hmm. or, you know, we fed 300 young people in mobile outreach last year, like right? those are activities, but they didn't necessarily speak to the transformation, yeah. right? Well, well, why are we running that basketball program? Why are we mentoring these young people to what end? And so, you know, I think Carl had, I remember Carl had came out of one annual review with the staff person who said, I've done all these things. I've poured my heart into it. And I don't know if I'm doing the right thing, like, right. And so is that, that sense of how do we provide mm. a clear direction or, or what we're aiming for? Um, and so that's, that birthed the five gauges. It was really um, looking at scripture and saying, well, when God impacts in life, what happens in that life? Mm -hmm. Right. And so we, you know, we saw obviously five things. <laughs> Again, that's it's not the be all and end all. That's it's only five concept. things. Yeah. <laughs> not five themes, right? Yeah, yeah. And so renewed character, right? Mm. So we'd call that the fruit of the spirit. Mm. Um, healthy relationships, so reconciliation, participating in community, rooted identity. So walking with Jesus, engaging your life, making decisions with him, depending on him. Joyful service, so putting others first. And then clear purpose. So discovering your gifts and abilities and living those out. So those, uh, and those came about, we engaged all of our staff. We, I remember the staff meeting clearly. Uh, we invited our staff to say, here's our vision. What does it look like in your program? And I think we had 317 sticky notes or something. And literally 315 of them fit really beautifully into this, these five gauges. Mm -hmm. Now we hadn't named them that at that time. Yeah. And so there was a, a very strong um, resonance with, with that picture of our vision. Mm. Uh, the challenge, I think, for us was then to try to measure <laughs> to that vision, right? <laughs> and that's, you know, that began a, a real learning journey for us. Um, and I would say we almost lost the heart of the vision mm. in the process of trying to measure. I'm hearing activities impact it's as if they're on two ends you know one is activity and in a way inputs and then these are the outputs and in a way in between that had to be a figuring out of how do we track it as it gets to impact or how do we know the impact is associated to that input you know that output and that input are direct because there's also unrelated you know fields that have impacted certain you know, have contributed to certain impact as well, which I find yeah. happens a lot where I'm like, did this really happen because of my program? Or is it we like never know. some random yeah. other person who just helped them? But um, yeah, or someone okay. prayed it's in some distant land, right? Like we don't know. Yeah. Right? So what you just said there is important is you said in, in the process of trying to measure it perhaps derailed you from focusing on the impact. Is that 
how you say or, or focusing on the vision like the vision picture yeah. right mm-hmm. of, of our heart's desire for what we want to see in young people um so i i think part of it was you know you're trying to develop software and that becomes very almost clinical and all of a sudden people mm-hmm. felt like i'm measuring my young people on this scale and right it just uh, it was dissonant with the heart of a youth worker who loves their young people and just you know, cares for them wholeheartedly and pours their heart into this thing. Um, you know, and so for me, the key was, are we being intentional in our activities towards an impact, right? And that's, to me, is a little bit different than, well, let's just measure the impact. I, I think human nature very quickly leads people to a performance orientation. Mm. So once we once we started kind of tracking young people on a gauge, all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, if my young person's not increasing on the gauge, well, then I'm failing at my job and maybe I shouldn't even be doing this, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's where that process. Yeah, and so, okay, track. that is really fascinating to me. So then first you said the intention to your program versus say measurement. And secondly, what I'm hearing what you say is that as soon as you start measuring, something happens, whether it's overt, like it's like, I can totally imagine it's an unintended, it's unintended for you, for your staff to perhaps feel that way uh, for themselves. And they might even thought, no, I can, I can keep a clear head. I can measure and maybe I can do this. Maybe some of the other staff were like, no, I can't, I don't want to do this. Of course, I've experienced that too. Um, So when you get that, can you say a little bit more what happens when someone tries to measure something? How does that impact? So number one, you said there's something that changes in, I don't know if I'm doing it right, and I, I'm going the wrong way or the right way, and it kind of stops you when perhaps you could keep on going uh, with certain actions, and it might, it might pan out in the way it's supposed to, supposed to go. But is there yeah. any other things that happen in that you find in the relational dynamic or in the process of getting to that impact, yeah. Yeah, I think it's twofold. I think there's one is the human tendency to compare, right? Which of course is rooted in, we can have a whole other discussion on that theologically. But, (laughs) you know, say say if I'm a staff worker with Light Patrol, which is working with young people who are living rough on the streets of Toronto, (laughs) I mean, my kids are gonna be on the quote unquote, lower end of that gauge, you know, but at my launch team, which is working with young Christian leaders, like these are kids who are ready to change the world. That's and right. so inherently, I think there was a sense of like, oh, I'm failing because look at them over there. Right. Again, which never intended. That was the last thing I ever would have wanted someone to feel in this journey. But it just it happens. Right. That's how it happens. The other the second part of it is, oh, man, I've been meeting with this young person for a year and a half and there's still stuck down here like am i just wasting my like it just caused that almost a sense of despair if all you saw was the measurement and you weren't looking for what is god doing in the midst of this so one is that everyone has a different starting point in which someone is measured because if you're measuring two things you need in a way in, in the sciences like actual science you need you need a certain you know, vacuumed environment to a sterile environment in order to begin it at the right exact timing of two things going at the same pace, right? Like, and and so if people are beginning in different starting points, different trauma, 
different levels of privilege or underprivilege, then putting a measurement on different people's starting points is number one, quite complex and difficult. Two is um, being able to know that there's different phases um, in someone's transformation. And sometimes I imagine, like I, I remember thinking about this when we were doing stuff at Youngstreet Mission is that, you know, someone coming to, we, we gauge self-awareness, whether you could be self-aware. Uh, yeah. we, we're, we're, we're trying to determine someone's self-awareness. And, and I, I remember breaking that down to five steps of someone coming to self-awareness. And I'm thinking to myself, like that first part, if you're not self-aware, <laughs> It takes a long time to be self-aware, right? And then perhaps step two, three, four, and five is a little bit faster. But this first step is really long, right? Because certain yes. stages require longer investment, more intangibles, more trust building, more all these things that you can't necessarily manufacture. Yeah, and I think we experience that underlying theological tension a lot through this in the mm -hmm. sense of, Right. I think you and I would agree that transformation is the work of God's spirit. It's not, you know, a human brought about event or change. You know, I would still argue it's worth capturing what we see, yeah. you know, whether or not we control it, you know, because it helps us see what's unfolding. And I think that was, you know, we've now shifted the metaphor away from the gauges and I'm happy to share more about that. But, yeah. you know, again, the the, it was a fascinating lesson in terms of the intention of what we were trying to create and the reality of what unfolded. And, and even when we stopped measuring, you know, we said, okay, we're abandoning this kind of collection of, you know, data and tracking youth in this way, the residual effect of having associated those gauges with that mm -hmm. process, mm -hmm. again, almost, you know, even though our team would have said, absolutely, we resonate with this vision of these five gauges and what they mean, we were stuck still in this measurement, partly because the very nature of the word gauge, of course, implies measurement, right? So, um, word choice. Yes. Yeah. But again, uh, that was part of that journey. We've, we've now actually shifted the metaphor to a canvas, and we talk about the canvas of transformation. And these are the five colors of YU in that journey of transformation. And really, God being the artist, which is such a beautiful scriptural metaphor of who God is in our life. Wow. And so, so We're backtrack, actually backtrack yeah. there. So canvas, yeah, the five colors, yeah, God being artist. I heard those three things, and that yes. Can you elaborate on each of those? Why canvas? Uh, I think because it's it's messy, it's organic. Hmm. You know, it's a smattering and it's a flattering. <laughs> uh, it's not just us, right? Like, right? There's so many inputs. God's already in progress in a young person's life before we meet them we're just one part of that whole process. Uh, I think we really wanted to focus on, you know, this is God's work in the lives of our young people, mm -hmm. but we still, again, the resonance around those five, what we now call our primary colors was very deep across the whole organization. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't want to lose that mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're just, yeah, we're just rolling this out. And for me, the shift is really, like I want our staff to see what God's doing in the lives of your own people. Right. Yeah. And so again, it's not about that performance piece. It's about seeing what's unfolding and responding to, to what's unfolding as we discern. So, you know, I, I talk a lot about when new staff come to YU intentionality and faithfulness, 
right? Mm. And I think those things need to work together. Because I think, you know, someone might say, well, I'm being faithful. Like I've been doing this this way for 30 years, you know, I'm faithful to it. But if we ignore the intentionality of listening and well, what's God doing? How is it changing? You know, we lose, we get stuck in our faithfulness. Whereas if we're always intentional without faithfulness, yeah, I think I think we get caught up in this continual cycle of constantly changing things if it's not working, right? Yes. I'm going to change it. I'm going to change it. So I think there's, if you bring those both together, and really have what we would call a discernment approach to our ministries, which is a very prayerful listening to how we're called to do what we're called to do, you know, that's the path I'm hoping our people will take. I have this conversation a lot with some of my friends who are different than me, because I see certain friends of mine who stick with things, uh, no matter what storm, no matter what effectiveness or not, and they continue at it, they stay in that lane, and they are faithful, and they don't necessarily adapt too much, they just continue on. And just like what you're saying, I'm the type of person who, who I was saying this to my friend the other day, I'm like, I'm in my lane and I'll quickly be looking at other people's lanes yeah. and seeing, yeah. oh, that's that's a pretty good lane there. And instead yeah. of running hard in my lane, I'm like, okay, let me let me just slow down here. Let me yeah. engage. Let me try that lane for a little bit. <laughs> and yeah. in a way, you don't get much done because you keep flopping between lanes. And I think there's a, a, a reason why people are designed a little like that, like to innovate and change and adapt yeah. quickly. Totally. There's certain people that we need who are just really faithful to stay with it. Um, which I, I admire so much because it's not necessarily innate in me. <laughs> I'll go somewhere yeah. and I'll move on. But that's a that's an interesting distinction between intentionality and faithfulness. Yeah, and the need for both. And so back to in, in, intentionality. So when yeah. I heard you say the idea of changing from measurements to measuring change to being more intentional in the program planning, if I heard you correctly, is that where, so instead of putting the energy on measuring or necessarily capturing in the way you were, you want to put it more front loaded and, and be intentional? Is that what I hear? Or how would you? Yeah, that's, I think we were doing that already, Jesse. Like we have mm -hmm. a, you know, all of our teams do a full day discernment retreat, yeah. right? As part of their planning process, we have kind of an envisioning session with them. I think it was more of a, a shift from, um, hmm, it's a good question. More of a shift from sort of this sort of factual clinical placement to more of, right? I mean, it's a much more artistic metaphor, which is yeah. more narrative, mm -hmm. more unfolding. And again, I think that's also a cultural piece of, right? <laughs> you know, kind of a scientific modernistic approach to a more unfolding, you know, I hope God honoring approach of, of hearing a narrative of seeing God at work. Because I do think, you know, yes, God calls us to ministry that sometimes doesn't bear fruit. Yet we also hear Jesus saying, yeah. right, we will be known by the fruit we bear. <laughs> and so uh, I think at least in our case, if we're not seeing fruit, we should at least be asking the question of the Lord. Do you want us to be doing something differently here? Yes. It's not, a, it's not an automatic yes or no, but it's, at, it's, it's inviting that question and so for me the shift to that canvas metaphor to these colors is about allowing those questions to surface and unfold and i think the assumption and i think theologically yeah that the assumption in the way that the world and the social sector is moving towards is that if change is not occurring 
as a result of your particular inputs into this program, something must be wrong with your inputs. Right. When, when theologically, I would think as well, there's room for us to say that when something is not working, it doesn't mean the inputs are necessarily wrong. It just means perhaps the soil is hard, right? Or it's a, it is a path that you're trying to nail down and knowing yeah. this is really important. The, the nuance between and the particularity of when it is an issue of ineffective inputs versus this just requires like a lot of tilling and a lot yes. of, a lot of digging um, before we're going to hear, we're going to hear, see anything spread out from the ground. Yeah. Which right. is going to take me all the way back to our beginning as to why does why you look the way it does. Hmm. The key for me is that our people, that we are equipping our people to be discerning hmm. within their context, in their community, to know the answer to that, right? And again, obviously, we're a faith-based organization with people that are very deeply rooted in their relationship with Jesus, is how, we are, how are we equipping our people to listen to what God's Spirit is doing in a community, it's still being intentional, but it's not just making an assumption based on, well, you're not getting this impact, therefore do something different. Yeah, and that's a hard, that's hard, I find, to train people or even find people um, that are discerning, right? And be, not because people aren't, it's that people are used to, and I include it, I'm used to seeing the world based on evaluation of whether yeah. my inputs are right or wrong. And when I encounter obstacles that say this is not effective, um, there's a big tendency and a big slippery slope to make me think I'm doing something wrong. Um, and, and I think it has a lot to do with the overemphasis on our abilities to change people <laughs> and, yeah. and our view of God's power or intervention in it. Uh, and, and really the mystery of transformation. Like if they're if there's one thing I'm concluding more and more is that what, what prevents me from tabulating transformation too much is I just am convinced as I grow older, how little I have to do with the transformation of certain things in my life or people in my life, or even my kids. Um, there's how little and how much at the same time. Yeah. Right. right? Like it's, it's, that's oh, hard. Yeah. yeah. I, I can't yeah. dismiss that. But. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, when I think of that discerning piece, mm. well, I'm going to go back to what you said earlier. Like we need Jesse Sedergos in the world who are going to be looking at different lanes and changing. And we need mm. people who are faithful in their lane. And for us at YU, discernment is a collective process. Like okay. Christ, Christ shaped a body. It wasn't just a bunch mm. of individual pieces who would go out and do their own thing. So if the main function of a measuring tool is to provide us with the data to analyze and consider as we refine our programs and approach, or perhaps start a new initiative, the question is, what is an alternative method we could use to collect that data if we didn't have the option of a measuring tool? What if you take away the surveys and are left without the benefits of economics? Well, it wasn't so long ago when ministries and social programs based their decision on a more subjective criteria, like their passion for a community, perhaps, or maybe an unvetted idea that just felt right to do by a community leader. Perhaps they base their conclusions on undocumented conversations with the community. 
Or maybe, like Scott suggested, they base it off of a core team, discerning what it is that they should do. All these methods feel a bit flimsy compared to that group of economists that I mentioned at the beginning. To base decisions on a hunch, instinct, intuition, or discernment just doesn't feel robust enough in our mechanized world. It lacks precision. But that's just it. We aren't machines. Our communities are made up of moving, organic beings that feel, that hurt, that love. We don't want to see an ECG to know our unborn child is alive and well. We want to hear their heartbeat. We want to feel them kicking. There may be some value, right, in these pie charts. They might bode well for the macro broad stroke decisions in a board meeting. But we might want to consider an alternative means to hear the raw and emotive data from those we serve and work alongside. We might want to sense the tone of the community's voice, the body language, the atmosphere, the intangible uneasiness or excitement we feel in the room. We might not be able to know precisely, but we might have enough to discern a path forward. As always, thanks for listening in. Join us in our next episode as Scott and I discuss what that discernment might look like in an organization like YU. I'd love to hear from you, so feel free to leave a comment, drop me an Instagram message, and if you haven't already, please do subscribe and rate this podcast. Have a great rest of the week, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you.